0: Well, let's pray one more time. Father, having heard your word, we want it to have its effect in us. We want to have open ears. We want to have hearts that are postured under your authority. We want to have hearts that are soft. And Lord, we want to have faith that is strengthened. And we can't do a single one of those things on our own. We can listen, but not truly hear, and we can try to receive and imitate, but not truly be affected. And so, Lord, it has been your spirit that has been at work for ages, and we would ask that you would continue that work in us and among us this morning. Let your word have its effect in us, plant it deep in us, that it might bear fruit from us. In Jesus' name, amen. If I were to say from The Wizard of Oz, follow the yellow brick road, right? If I were to say, oh, we, oh. There's a lot of stuff that comes out of that movie that's kind of weird, isn't there? We could, we could keep doing that sort of thing. We could talk about some of the popular level stuff. But at the end of the day, The Wizard of Oz is a really disturbing tale. Have you ever thought about it too much? There's the one that we see in the movie, there's an even more thought provoking version of it that was written by another guy. But at the end of the day, there's something about The Wizard of Oz that really reminds me of how far we've gotten in the book of Galatians. Because if you think about it for a second, and I'm sure that's the analogy that came to mind to you, we've been going through the first two chapters and you're like, this is The Wizard of Oz! It's not, but it kind of attaches itself to this weird dynamic in The Wizard of Oz, right? There's a a girl who sort of has a dream, but then her house lands on a witch, and then she's got to go something with another witch, and there's another witch, and that witch is good, and all of a sudden she's got shoes on, and she's on a quest, and the quest is supposed to get her somewhere, and she's supposed to find a wizard who happens not to be a wizard, and at the end of the day she does all this stuff. And what does it do? do? Nothing. It's kind of a pointless, it's like Star Wars episode, like, eight, right? Like, what do they do in that movie? Like, nothing. There's a whole mess of busyness. Like, you gotta, in the Wizard of Oz, you gotta get through the field of flowers and fight the monkeys, and at the end of the day, she, like, spills water on a witch and takes the broom. Like, Man, you could have told this story way faster. I don't know what all that was about. But there's something about that when you get to the end of kind of a a tale like that, which is, again, the way that I felt about a lot of Star Wars, but 8 in particular. So if you want to skip one, just don't watch 8. It was just a whole waste of time. That's the way that I would feel if I was a Jew, kind of talking about the law, having read the first two chapters of the book of Galatians. Like, what? What? I've been a good Jew my whole life. I've done everything right my whole life. I've understood the Torah. I've been study a student of the Torah. I've tried my very, very best to keep the law. And now you're telling me that my... Efforts to bring other Gentiles in by saying, here's the way God accepts us by being good Jews like I've been a good Jew. And now I'm here in Galatia trying to do God's work among the pagan Galatians who want to come to God like I've come to God. And you're telling me, Paul, you are astonished that we so quickly have deserted him and have turned to a different gospel, which isn't a gospel because there's really only one gospel. And I'm thinking, Wait, what? I've done all this work, and you're telling me it's for nothing? Or as I keep reading, you're saying, through the law, chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. What's the deal, Paul? I've been trying to be good my whole life. I've been following the rules my whole life. I've fought the monkeys. I've made it through the, the flower fields. And you're saying it was for nothing? Like, am I, am I just getting to a God who's nothing more than some show behind a curtain? And you're telling me that all this stuff I did, like, if, if the book of Galatians has bothered you a little bit at some level, this is this is the tension that ought to arise in good little Christians that have been trying to do what God told them to do. Whenever we confront a message of grace, it should offend something a little bit inside us, right? Because as we've been talking about, we live in a world, we've grown up in a world, we've even raised our kids into a world where we tell them kind of the message of Proverbs or the message that you might get from the Old Testament law. That if you want good things, you live the right way. And if you live the right way, then in some senses, and it's not like the Bible ever says this, but it's kind of implied like all the time, right? That God's obligated to give you good stuff, like a teacher's obligated to give you a good grade and your boss is obligated to give you a raise. Because if you do the right thing, then good things happen. That's the way this world should work. And God's like, I don't follow your rules. Now, if the question that you have still is, then what is the rule for? Why why are there laws in the first place? What's with all the Torah next week? All right? So there you go. We've had a few teasers and those kinds of things. Next week, we will get in, kind of like when we were in Romans, we had to ask this question too, because Paul was explaining, really to the group in Galatia and to the group that he wants to get to in Rome. (laughs) He's explaining the gospel using kind of the same pattern of logic. But here so far... Paul has, just to kind of recap where we've been, and not just in those verses, he's come to them, and rather than commending them, he is exasperated by them. He's astonished at them. He says, you've been under a spell, and I don't get who the wizard is that placed the spell over you, but it baffles me because I gave you one clear message. You come to God by believing God. That's it. And now you're doing all this other hocus-pocus magic stuff, and it's almost as though you've been bewitched into thinking that a broken system is going to work. But let me just ask, how did you come to God in the first place? Was it because he only took the people who were obedient or the people who believed? The people who believed. And how are you getting better? How are you growing? How are you improving in your life? Is it through all your effort, or is it through this life of belief, hearing God and believing? And how does God done anything miraculous among you? Did he say, I will only do miraculous things against the most obedient people or uh, among the most obedient people? It's, it wasn't that way. He just did it. Because you heard and believed. That's that's this faith thing he's pushing and putting in contrast to where he's been so so important is this that the gospel may remain preserved that he said let me remind you when I first heard this stuff knocked off my horse you know the story I didn't go to all the popular people this is God's message I didn't go to Jerusalem I mean I visited Jerusalem a little while then I was away for a while and by the time I actually hung out with Peter I told him off I corrected him publicly because he was acting like a hypocrite and he was denouncing and destroying the gospel. Not with his words, but with the way he was believing, with the way he was behaving. And other people were starting to act hypocritically like gospel trouncers because they were saying, oh, we really are kind of Afraid of what these people think, who are the law-abiding Jews down in Jerusalem. We're worried about them. And so we're gonna sort of reject and make the Gentiles second class because we know that God does have two tiers of people. Pause, man, you, you go for that. You've just you just tear up everything I've written, throw it away, because you're buying into something that's not good news at all anymore. There's only one bit of good news. And so to remind us of that, he's quoted. So far, he's quoted the Old Testament really five significant times. The verse we that I told you we're going to park on comes in chapter 3, verse 11. If you heard it in Habakkuk, and you heard it in Hebrews, and you heard it in Galatians, we're also going to look at it in Romans, too. It's, it's become, for Paul and for the pastor who's writing the book of Hebrews, a, a pretty significant Old Testament verse that he's looking back on. But it's not really the first Old Testament verse that we've gotten to. The first Old Testament verse came in chapter 3, verse 5, where he said this. Does he who supplies the spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And then he goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 15 and says, just the way that Abram got a blessing from God, he he became righteous before God. How did that happen? He believed God. See it right there. Just as Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Did God say, I'm going to do all this stuff in you? if you're obedient, if you're perfect, and I'm getting you because you're strong. No, absolutely not. The way that Abraham became righteous before God was by hearing that God was going to do the impossible, and he's like, I believe it. There you go. That's his first Old Testament reference, Genesis 15. Second Old Testament reference was a little bit later. He said in chapter 3, verse 10, for all who, you heard Zoe read this, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not b- abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. That, ew. So if the way to get blessed like Abraham is by believing God, then how do you get cursed by God? Well, reject that whole idea and park all your confidence on how well you do things. But if you want to hear more about that, just go back and listen to our message last week. Because what we saw is that's not the way that the law works the law works not in a percentage grade system but in a total pass or total fail and if you fail in any of it you are cursed by all of it woof so apparently getting saved is not by being good it's by somebody who can absorb all of that curse and earn all of that blessing and then take the one and bestow the other this are, are you serious This is the way it works with God. All I have to do is accept that that's true and believe it. You're getting it. That's what I mean by faith. That's why he keeps making this contrast. And then in 3.11 comes this phrase we're going to park on right now. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For, here's the phrase, the righteous shall live by faith. Or... Because I told you that by faith phrase, it's kind of hanging out there and it's hard to know what it's supposed to be attached to. Is it supposed to be a prepositional phrase that functions like an adverb, meaning, how do you live? I live by faith. Or is it a prepositional phrase that's supposed to be attached to the righteousness to function like an adjective? How are you getting righteous, a righteous one, by faith? And so what we're going to do is we we really do want to kind of spend some time over this. And it feels like the only like accurate way to do that is to go back to what Habakkuk said in the very beginning. Kind of hear what Habakkuk said in the beginning, get the context and the contrasts of it. And then we're going to jump back into Galatians chapter three. Look at it one more time in context there. And then we're going to look at what Paul says about it in Romans and the way the author of Hebrews uses it. So you get a little bit where we're headed. All right. Habakkuk first. So let's look at Habakkuk because in Habakkuk or in Galatians three eleven we read this phrase: "The righteous shall live by faith." And you heard it there from Habakkuk chapter two verse four. So the question is, what is what this meant when Habakkuk actually wrote it? All right, Habakkuk chapter two verse four starts. We'll just start at two one, where he says, "I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower," which if. You care is where the Jehovah's Witnesses get their phrase, the watchtower. So apparently, this is a really popular, you know, kind of section of scripture um, used by Christians and cults alike. I will take my stand at the watchpost and station myself on the tower, and I will look out to see what he will say to me and what he will answer concerning my complaint. So if we're gonna understand four, we gotta ask the question: what is his complaint? And his complaint is summed up by the whole conversation that's happened in chapter 1, which kind of goes like this. Hey, God, all the people I live with in Judah are wicked. God's like, yep, they are. And Habakkuk's like, okay, so what are you going to do about that? God's like, don't worry, I've got it. I'm bringing in the Babylonians, that ruthless and cruel army to punish your people. And yeah, that's exactly it right there. Habakkuk's like, excuse me, God, that doesn't work. Because I told you that we're wicked, but we're like wicked on like kind of, a, we're getting a 65% out of 100 kind of way. Those people are wicked in that they don't even get like a 2%. They are really, really wicked. We're not as wicked as them. So you it's, it's unjust for you to use the more wicked to punish us for our wickedness. So I'm standing on the watchtower and waiting. That's my complaint, God. What you got? That's that's chapter one of the book of Habakkuk, all right? That's what he means by his complaint. And so then God answers and says, The Lord answered me. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For this vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens, it won't lie. If it seems slow, you gotta wait for it. It will come, it will not delay. And I'm like, whoa, this is gonna be amazing. What is this thing that you're gonna say that will be the vision, this thing that won't be slow? It won't wait, it'll do what it's supposed to do. And here comes the vision. It begins with chapter two, verse four. Behold, his soul is puffed up is not upright within him but the righteous shall live by his faith. Now there's more to the it. There's more to the vision. There's more that God says back to him about the justice he is going to bring on the Babylonians, but also the hey get out of my face I can do whatever I want kind of bit that sort of, you know, permeates Job, permeates yeah, the Bible. Um, but but that's kind of the way it starts. This whole vision has been set up by a complaint. God then preliminarily kind of backs up how amazing his response is going to be there in verses 2 and 3 and chapter 2 verse 4 he sets up what we could at least see as a couple contrasts right here it is we have somebody who is has a soul and that this person right probably we would think of the babylonians right the more wicked group that he's talking about, and but in some also ways, the wicked people of Judah that he's talking about. In other words, there's all these wicked people, and what is he doing? He's setting up a contrast of them and what we would see as the righteous. So you've got the arrogant wicked, and then you've got the righteous. See the first contrast? Pretty straightforward, right? Second contrast that's there in 2.4 of Habakkuk is the way that that arrogant wicked guy kind of lives his life. He is a bloated soul. He is puffed up. He is not upright. And in contrast, the the righteous ones live, and there's the addition of the word his there. So this is our original phrase, kind of coming back, this is the first time we're hearing it, right? Righteous ones shall live by their faith. Or if a lot of commentators were reading this, they would say, look, the the phrase by faith is notoriously difficult, especially as Paul uses it. Sometimes Paul's talking about by faith or faith of Christ or faith in Christ. Sometimes the prepositions aren't in Greek quite as specific as they are in English. If I say from, you know what I mean. If I say in, you know what I mean. The problem is sometimes the same word in Greek can be translated as a lot of other things that feel directional. You know, it's going this way. So sometimes faith in Christ can also be faith of Christ. So it's kind of Christ's faithfulness. Are we talking about putting your belief in something or being faithful to something that you believe? And in some senses, the way Paul uses Greek, he's like, yeah. And I'm like, no, Paul, I mean, which? He's like, well, yeah. That's just the way faith works. You, you believe something and it does something. It's it's not either or. It's not as though you can believe something and that has no consequence. And it also is that you shouldn't put your hope and your belief in something that is not unreliable and faithful in and of itself. And so there is a faithfulness of God, a faithfulness that we should have from God and a certain sense of our hope and our trust being attached to him. So if the bloated souls that are not upright, are going to live one way. Righteous people should live by their sense of belief and faithfulness that kind of comes around it. So you see that other contrast? We've got wicked, bloated people in Judah and Babylon doing whatever they want. More often than not, killing the righteous ones. So what are the righteous ones supposed to do? Second contrast is, Be faithful to God and trust him. That should grate against us. It did in Job, didn't it? This sense that things should always go a certain way. If I'm faithful to God, then things should always work well for me. Well, that is where the third contrast really does kind of show up here. The third contrast basically says, here's what's going to happen, though, for that righteous one. He will... Live. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. But the righteous by faith, that righteous one, he's going to live. Even though the judgment that is going to come in chapters 2 and 3 is ultimately going to pronounce that the Babylonians will come in and actually harm the people of Judah, there are going to be people who will die. There's ultimate life that this original verse kind of proposes and the contrast of that actually comes later on. After four, the, the, the message that will not fail, that will hasten to its end, this, that God's response back to Habakkuk, it involves a lot of what he calls woes. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. Woe to him who builds a town with blood. Woe to him who says to an idol, awake. All these different things are going to bring not life, Or is the contrast that we've just seen the last two weeks in Galatians, blessing and cursing. But in the language of Habakkuk, the unrighteous, the bloated, wicked, they're going to experience judgment and curses, the opposite of blessing in life. It will come. Wait for it. Happens in my time. But it'll come. So, What we get from Habakkuk, at least if we're trying to get into Galatians and try to understand something, isn't so much entirely what all it means, but it does put some guardrails up for us, doesn't it? Here's what it can't mean. That to live by faith means I'm going to see everything in my time and everything's always going to make sense to me. Can't mean that. So if Paul's going to look back at Habakkuk and say, I'm going to borrow this phrase from him, we have to at least understand some some boundaries that Habakkuk is putting up. Because Habakkuk, in and of himself, is violating the the whole principle of this, right? Habakkuk is saying, God, I don't like the wickedness in my country, and I don't like the wickedness of the enemy that you're going to use, and I think that's unfair, so you're going to have to do something about it. God says, no, Habakkuk, you're going to be righteous, but you're going to do so by faith faithfully waiting so the first thing it can't mean coming out of Habakkuk is that I get to see righteousness happen in my day and at my time the second thing it can't mean is that I can equate God's blessing with today's prosperity because the wicked rich people in Judah those are the ones he's complaining about in the beginning and the wicked conquering nation of Babylon in just those standards of that day they look like they're doing great Even if we didn't get into Galatians, and even if we didn't get into Romans and Hebrews, right there, that's enough to really correct a lot of errant assumptions I make in life. I do the same thing that people have done for ages, which is to think that how well your life is going right now is an equal sign to how much God is smiling on you. At how well things are going. If I said, who are the really righteous people? Who are the people that God really blesses in this church? You might be tempted to say it's the popular, the successful, the, the folks that you would just say everything's going well for them, right? You might not pick to the person struggling with depression and just trying to be faithful to do the right thing. You might not pick somebody who's really in an embattled relationship right now and struggling through it, and it's bringing out tough stuff in them. You might not pick the meek, the poor, the mourning. You might not pick the people in Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus says are actually blessed, right? Because we always live with, let's just see what is evident and apparent to us right now. And we're just going to say those are the people God blesses. Habakkuk says, uh, you you can't think that way. God doesn't work in your time, and he doesn't play by your rules. So that's the Old Testament phrase, all right? Now, let's jump back into Galatians chapter 3 and see at least what Paul seems to have meant by these words. Because more than Paul borrowing it from the Old Testament and saying, what God blesses is a life of people who remain faithful to him. In other words, the righteous living by faith. It can't just mean their own faithfulness, can it? Because if Paul's looking back and saying, what it really means for righteous to live by faith can't really just be the equivalent or by faith can't be a synonym for by their obedience to the works of the law. Because Paul's been setting those up as a contrast the entire time. So what Paul seems to mean is spelled out there in verse 12. He says, it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith. There's Habakkuk brought into this context. But the law is not of faith. Rather, And now he's quoting from another Old Testament passage. The one who does them shall live by them. This is out of Leviticus. It's one of the blessings that God seems to pronounce over the people who do try to obey him. And we'll get back to that next week. The question of how the law actually functions. If what Paul's saying in this is that the law is actually a wicked, legalistic, horrible thing, and we want to just reject it all together, you'd almost have the question of like, well, God, why did you send him on all those quests if that was just a wicked thing to do in the first place? And like he did in Romans, Paul's going to clarify that. But there is a contrast that still is there, even if the law isn't Wicked, as we'll see next week. There's still a contrast, and he sums it up there in verse 12. The law is not of faith. Rather, what he's quoting is from Leviticus chapter 18. Listen to this phrase, or this, this text here. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes, but you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules, and if a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Now it is evident, back to Galatians chapter 3 that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, Habakkuk. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. What's he revisiting? He's revisiting that that passage we just heard in Leviticus 18, where God is saying, there is life and good for you if you would walk in accordance with this law. And here's here's the tricky thing. This is just where I got stuck as I was trying to prepare this. I often sit down with people and give them counsel that feels like it's flowing directly out of Leviticus 18. Tell me about the problem that you're having. Here's the problem I'm having. Okay, I'm not sure if this is obvious to you, but you are causing this problem. You're causing this problem by the stupid and sinful way that you're living. Usually I'm a little more tactful than this, but I'm summing it up. All right, This is the Twitter version of it. And I trust me, I've been on the receiving end of this counsel. Here's the reason my life isn't working out. And somebody's going, oh, good. This is going to be super simple. It's going to be really hard, but super simple. You're causing your problems. Oh. But doesn't that feel like that's just counsel coming out of Leviticus 18? If a person does what's right, they'll live. They'll get the benefits of it. And though that is true, What Paul's ultimately saying is that can't be the core sense of how you're righteous, or to use Paul's other words, how you're justified before God. How do you, at the end of the day, know you're doing okay? Let's just take it back to a human relationship. Let's just ask a question of a husband and a wife. They're married for a while They like each other in some ways more than they did when they got married. And they are really annoyed by each other in some ways they didn't even know was possible when they got married. That's what normal marriage has become. A deeper appreciation and a deeper need for mercy. We bring all of it to the table at the same time. Amen to that. (laughs) Mike is amening that second part for Sophia, who has just had to live with Mike for a long time. If you were to talk to one of, those, one of those spouses and you just said, tell me, how do you know that your husband loves you? How do you know that your wife loves you? Wouldn't you be a little bit nervous if at the end of the day, all they could point to was the good stuff that seemed to happen over the last like 24 hours? I don't know, I was really nervous about this. I'm glad you brought it up because I've totally doubted whether or not they're for me, whether they love me. But then, yesterday, they I, I was leaving and they said, bye, I love you. And I was like, oh, oh, good. Oh my gosh, that's wonderful you love me. Oh, because I was super nervous because that annoying stuff and my annoying stuff. And I just and it's just like, you get this little squirrely spouse where you're like, chill out. They made a covenant with you years ago. And their, their being with you isn't dependent on what happened in these last 24 hours. I think that's the vibe Paul's getting at in our relationship with God. Like, no, your, your general sense of okayness and righteousness, of justification, it, it can't be ultimately based on how well you've done things or how well God seems to be doing things. It can't, it can't be based on that. It's gotta be based on a deep abiding faith that the ancient promises that God's made about how he's going to save people have been fulfilled in Jesus and then applied to us. If it has to be based on how you did of the law over the last 24 hours, you're going to turn into this little squirrely Christian Christian He's always so worried. Have I gotten the right sense from God when I was praying? Have I had the right prayers answered? Have I felt this? Have I felt that? Did other people affirm things in me? Did I come to church and get the, the boost that I needed? And what's gonna happen at the end of that? You're just gonna be like, chill out, God loves you, it's okay i got to be honest, guys, when we design songs to start off our Sundays, I just assume most of you are coming in like me, feeling kind of squirrely. And what we need isn't some sense of what can you do to feel more for God. But it's okay. He loves you. He's for you. Set your faith in that. And let your deep righteousness abide in faith. I think that's what paul's getting i think he's taking habakkuk bringing it here and saying this is the way the righteous get to live by faith not by all of our works but just by faith now if we got that right then it can't contradict the other times that Paul would use this, right? It feels like if that's the right way to read this here, then when Paul mentions it and when another author mentions it, in other words, when they're quoting Habakkuk, does what we're just thinking about this sync up or does it get like contradicted? So that's what I want us to do just to kind of close our time down is to go to a couple other passages and just ask the question, does this sync up? Does this fit what, because Galatians is a little book, Romans is a bit bigger, and so if this fits the way that he uses it in Romans, for instance, then we might feel a little bit like, okay, yeah, we're getting it right, because I can promise you this, you will hear in other Christian-esque settings... You'll hear in the time when you go on Facebook and you see how well everybody else is doing, and you're like, oh, those are the people God blesses. He's not blessing me because I wasn't part of that, or my kids aren't doing that, or I'm just not, my life isn't looking like that. I guess God's just not loving me. And you're like, whoa, how, why did it take me five minutes to forget this? It's the reason entire thing's there. And Paul's like, like man, I'm, I'm not surprised, but I'm astonished. And that's sometimes the way that I feel when my soul drifts away from these truths and I get that squirreliness inside me. We, we want to back this up. So let's just ask Romans chapter 1, verse 17. In 16, you, you may know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God. It's other stuff. There's no power there. There's no dynamite to that. This is power And then he says this, for in it, that powerful gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from the faith for the faith. As it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. One way of attaching the preposition of by faith is to how we live. And I think that's a big part of what Paul really has said. That was part of the Galatians 2:20, if we went back to the other book, right? I've died to the law. I've been crucified with Christ, and in that death, I died to the power of the law over my life. And now, instead, I've been bound to Christ, raised up with Him, and I've got, I've got this new allegiance, this new life. And so I get to live now in one banner. It's just by faith. I get to live by believing. That's, that's the way that I'm just going to go through my days. I'm going to be living. How you living? How you doing? Ah, by faith. Thanks for asking. Well, that's not what I was expecting to hear. I know it's not what I was expecting to say. But it's the only thing that works. Trust me on this. Because if I got to be answering the question, how are you doing? How are you living? I'm living in the confidence of my obedience so terribly. The only thing that I could really say with specificity for how I'm doing well would be if I'm living by faith. I'm living trusting God. I'm living trying to believe his promises. I'm just trying to remember that my wife loves me. I'm just trying to remember that I didn't have to do anything so my husband would leave me. You don't want that marriage. And you don't want that kind of relationship with God. Instead, I want one of these where God says something and I'm just like, man... It's so great that he didn't ask me everything about how I was doing before he made that promise. It's so great that he didn't ask me how I was doing before he decided whether or not he was going to keep that promise. It's so great that he didn't have to figure out all the other qualifiers before he figured out whether he was going to fulfill that promise. Instead, he made it, he's going to keep it, and he's going to fulfill it, and I just get to trust that, so I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. I'm living by faith. But the only way that works is if we could also attach the phrase by faith to how we're righteous so that we could instead even read the phrase, the one who by faith is righteous gets to live. And that's where we get the other contrast from Habakkuk. What's the ultimate message that Habakkuk hears from God? The arrogant, puffy ones will die. The ones who seem persecuted but are faithful to God, they're the only ones who live. And if we equate that to this, it brings a real warning, doesn't it? Because the only way we stay a faithful church is if we stay faithful to the gospel. The only way we stay faithful believers, faithful families, a faithful community, the only way we populate anything out into this world is if we stay faithful to this one message. And what Paul has said is, so far in Galatians, there's a million ways to lose this message, and it's normally to think that you're righteous by, what are you going to put at the end of that? By your popularity? You're righteous based on your reputation? You're righteous based on obedience. You're righteous based on your sense of emotional stability. You're righteous based on your family history, your track record. We could be righteous by a lot of other stuff. And there is no confidence any of us should have that we should believe any of that message because, according to Paul, that message is not good. It's a message, but it's not a gospel. It's not a good message because it locates our righteousness in something other than our faith in the only faithful one. So where we have to go if we're really going to believe this is to say if if Paul's getting it here and if he's actually backing it up, which I think he's doing in Romans, then what is it that's going to happen that's going to threaten our faith this week? And I want to suggest three things. I think you can be scared of God. I think you can be scared of your past and I think you can be scared of your future. I think there's a three dominant fears. Scared of God, scared of your past, scared of your future. When you have to meet God, what would that moment be like? Like him walking into the room after you've been changed and presented, you've had your time in the mirror, and you're like, I, I'm looking pretty good. I'm ready. Lord, enter. Is that the way you feel if you were to meet God? Is that you would be like that? I, I think more often, most of us feel like No, don't come in. My pants are on my ankles. I don't have my buttons upright. I'm I'm just, my hair's a mess. Oh my gosh, I'm not presentable. God, you can't come and see me like this because there's just no way. I I would be ashamed. I would be embarrassed. And there's this deep sense of fear we have that God isn't one who would welcome me, smile at me, feel like I've clothed you and you're okay right in sense, we think that there's something else that's exposed in us that if God were to open up the door into the room, he'd be like, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. We're going to do like the Sons of Noah here thing, and we're just like, cover you over. Gosh, get yourself together, and then I'll come back. We're scared of God. Or we're scared of our past because one of the things we'd be most worried about having exposed isn't just like a present weakness. It's that thing that story, that moment. I was sitting with one of my sons and they was, he was asking me questions about my past and it was, it was good but hard because I had to remember who I was. I had to tell stories about things I'd done and who I had been and I was just like, oh, I don't like that person. But the thing I, I don't like most about that person is that I wish that I had killed him and he was just gone and there's no no similarity between that guy and me remained anymore i could talk about him like a historical figure like yeah we all had problems with abraham lincoln you know he was just a little you know rough he's a good guy generally but we know or we all had problems with hitler you know like i wish i could talk about old darren like that like there's nothing but the problem is when i talk about old darren i'm like because it still feels like he's around you know and so if you knew my past too much, some of the even some of the moments you'd be like, ah, I don't really like the present, Darren. So it's not just that I'm afraid of God, it's like I'm afraid of my past. Or or even then, if I have to load both of those up together and ask, where am I going then? How can I have any hope that there's going to be anything good? I look at it in my future, and I don't see, like, my whole stockpile of wealth, my whole stockpile of resources. My great reputation is leading me on. Oh, come with me. Everything's going to be great and glorious because, you know, look at how well I've managed things over the last five years or whatever. Like, no, I, I look I look out, and sometimes I can be terrified of, The future, I can be terrified of the past, I can be terrified of God. And I think the author of Hebrews knew that about us. And so he borrowed this phrase from Habakkuk too. And he said in chapter 10, yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, My soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But of those who have faith and live, or to use his words, and preserve their souls. This is what I love about the book of Hebrews, especially when we got to go through it, it just had that tone of somebody who cared for the people he was writing for. This, this long sermon has such a pastoral feel, and this is one of the greatest moments. Because part of it, to use Don Carson's words, part of it stings, and part of it sings. The part that stings is the warning. If, if we shrink back, God won't have pleasure in that, because everything else we shrink to, it's, it's not gospel. It's the sort of stuff that makes us squirrely before him. And that that, that doesn't please God. But that's not us. Trinity Church, that is not you. You don't have to be afraid. That is the great news about how the New Testament uses this Old Testament phrase. It's how Paul uses it. In Galatians, it's how he uses it in Romans, it's how the author of Hebrews uses it at the end of the day. Faith comes to righteous ones for life. Those righteous by faith will live. And so the righteous will live by faith. And in some ways, I want to say, Paul, which one exactly is it? Which one grammatically were you going for? And he's like, you know, I kind of wrote it so you'd kind of wrestle with all of it. I'm like, okay, you know, that works for me. The worship team has said that they need a little bit more time to get up on stage, so I'm going to invite them up to come now. I think that was the kind of segue they were looking for. Worship team, please stand and come up onto the stage now. Somebody can play something really nice and pleasant while I'm making these final three points. Is that the way we were doing it? (laughs) There they are. Very good. All right. We always do everything seamlessly around here, you know. Let me declare these three things to be true for you. The first is this. You are freed from being afraid of the terrors of God's presence. And if you don't believe that, here's an assignment for you. Find some passages in the Bible that back me up. Passages where you recognize you're actually welcomed into God's presence and you don't have to be afraid to come near him. That whatever he's done for you so that it's it's when you open that when he would open the door, you wouldn't have to run away, and he wouldn't run away from you. You're freed from being afraid of God. The second thing that's true is you are freed from being afraid of the shadows of your past. No matter what your past contains, you don't have to be afraid of those shadows anymore. And if you have trouble believing that that's true, here's your assignment find some promises in the Bible that back me up. I don't think I've invented any one of these three, these freedoms that I'm declaring. And so if you look into your past and you have trouble believing that you're actually justified because of what you did in the past, search the scripture out. Or if you have trouble, find some friends with you who would search the scriptures out so that there could be a promise from God that you could, by faith, claim and live. And the third thing to declare is that Trinity Church, you are freed from being afraid of the mystery of the future. Because on some level, I think we can relate to all or at least one of these fears. But that's not the truest thing about you. The truest thing is that we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But we are are of those who have faith and live so that our souls are preserved let's pray that God would strengthen our faith Lord in the words of the one that Jesus encountered we believe but help our unbelief I thank you that you've preserved in this pithy little loaded phrase that we can be righteous so that we can believe so that we can live. And Father, I pray that you would make Trinity Church into a place where the righteous live by faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me, please. Let's sing together.